Our great God and Father, we thank you. We praise you for your great love you have for us. Thank you, O oh God, that you are faithful to your promise and that even as we sing those words together, come, O oh Redeemer, come, we do not sing in vain. You have come, Lord Jesus, and you will come again. And we pray that even as we open up your word this morning, that you would use your word to prepare us, to fit us, to be a people ready for the coming of God. And we ask these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So as we mentioned this morning, we are going to be continuing on in our series in the book of Daniel. And this morning, uh, in the little section we're going to look at here in chapter 9, we discover what is undoubtedly the most effective antidote to one of the most common and toxic problems in the Christian life. And that is the problem of critical, judgmental self-righteousness. There was a a study taken among 16 to 29-year-olds a few years back, and they were asked the question, what is your perception, your general perception of Christians? And of uh, 16 to 29-year-old, unchurched, you know, kind of young adults, the the general perception of Christians, 91%, in fact, the general perception of Christians, is that we as a lot are self-righteous and critical and judgmental. Now, of course, uh, Christians are not the only ones who are quick to size people up and write them off, but it does happen quite a bit in church. Uh, Some of you might remember uh, that old episode of The Simpsons where uh, Maude Flanders returns from a Bible camp and Homer notices that she went missing and he says, oh, you were gone for the weekend. Yeah, and she says, I was at a Bible camp. I was learning how to be more judgmental, which I thought was clever. But I think it does kind of capture the general perception that many, many people in our culture, in our world have of Christians. Now, as I noted, uh, being judgmental and critical and self-righteous, this, of course, is not a Christian problem. It's not a church problem. It's not a religious problem. It really is a human problem. And there are plenty of self-righteous, judgmental, critical, uh, you know, um, environmentalists and uh, animal rights activists and critical judgmental, you know, right-wing talk show hosts and critical judgmental liberals or wherever you kind of you find yourselves, oftentimes we can find ourselves feeling superior to other people around us. John Stott described the problem like this. He said, we all have a fatal tendency to exaggerate the faults of others and to minimize the gravity of our own. We all have a fatal tendency to exaggerate the faults of others and to minimize the gravity of our own. Anybody here in the room have a tendency to exaggerate the faults of others while minimizing? You know, you say, no, 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 I don't exaggerate other people's faults. Those are their faults. And mine, quite frankly, are minimal. And that is your problem. He says, we seem to find it impossible when comparing ourselves to others to be strictly objective and impartial. On the contrary, we have a rosy view of ourselves and a jaundiced view of others. Now, why is it that we're so critical and judgmental of others? Why do we like to exaggerate and chatter with others about the faults of others? Well, it's just more fun, isn't it? Isn't it way more fun to talk about the faults of others than to uh, live with an awareness of your own faults? 
But of course, this will lead to the exact opposite of the character, the quality of life that Jesus is seeking to cultivate among his followers, a quality of life that is marked preeminently by humility, by grace, by generosity and hospitality. And so this morning, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at what is the best antidote to the problem of critical, self-righteous, judgmental attitudes. And the antidote that we find in this text is confession. It is confession of sin. Confession. And here's my thesis this morning. My thesis is that the regular practice of honest confession will make you a less self-righteous critic and judge and a more joyful, compassionate, and gracious person. That the practice, the regular practice of confession of sin before the face of God will make you less of a self-righteous critic and judge and a more joyful, compassionate, and gracious person. Now, anybody in the house need to become a little bit less of a critic and judge and a little bit more of a gracious and generous person. Anybody? Okay, so if if that's you, if you feel like that, maybe you feel like somebody next to you, maybe a spouse next to you, maybe a child or a parent next to you needs to become a little bit less of a critic and a little bit more generous and more gracious, then I I just want you to uh, turn to the person next to you and just say, neighbor. Go ahead, say, neighbor. You need to listen to this sermon today. (laughs) And say it as judgmental and as critical as you can. Now, what do we mean by confession? What do we mean by confession? Well, confession is a unique form of prayer. You see, one form of prayer is petition, where I raise the needs of myself and my family and of my neighbor and of the world around me before the face of God. That's petition. And then there's another form of prayer, praise. And this is where I stand in awe and give God glory for his beauty and his holiness and his majesty. And then there's a form of prayer that is thanksgiving. And this is where I give thanks to God for all of his goodness, his unending goodness in my life. But then there is confession. And in confession, I speak honestly and truthfully about the stupid things that I have done and am doing, and I speak to God about my own need for mercy. In confession, I turn my attention away from everyone out there that I think is the problem, And I talk honestly to God about the ways in which I am the problem. In confession, I stop the endless critique, the endless chatter with like-minded friends about all the liberals or the fundies or the lefties or the kids or the parents or my husband or the gays or the media or the people who don't know how to drive. And instead, I speak honestly about myself and my own problems before the face of God. So if you need to grow a little bit more in your own posture of humility and grace and compassion and sympathy towards others, then I want to invite you to turn your attention to this great prayer of confession that we have in Daniel 9. You see, in Daniel 9, Daniel gives us what is arguably the most beautiful and profound prayer of confession in the entire Bible. 
And so what I want to do is I want to kind of dive into Daniel's prayer of confession, and I want us to explore here what we learn about confession so that we might regularly engage in the practice of confession for our own healing and wholeness in this whole arena of self-righteousness. And so let's together, let's look at Daniel's prayer of confession, and I just want to draw out four observations about this prayer. And the first observation is this. Here's the first thing that we learn from Daniel's prayer about confession. Number one, confession begins with the promise of God's mercy. Confession begins with the promise of God's mercy. Now, notice what I said. I didn't say confession begins with your own self-flagellation, with beating yourself up. Confession first begins with the promise of God's mercy. Look at what the text says in Daniel 9, verse 1. Notice what it is that initiates, that actually evokes this incredibly beautiful prayer of confession. Look at what it says in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the book's the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel right here is is speaking against the backdrop of the grand story of God's interactions with Israel. God redeems Israel from the land of Egypt He takes them to Mount Sinai, he gives them his law, he makes them his people, and he says, you will be a holy kingdom of priests before all of the nations. Just observe my law, this relationship with us, keep it tight, keep it firm, and when you go into the land that I am giving you, you will be a light to all of the nations. Israel takes the law. They spend a little bit of a detour, 40 years in the, in the wilderness, and then they go into the promised land. God heaps them down with fulfillments to all of his promises. He gives them a king. He gives them a, a temple. He gives them this great holy city, Jerusalem. But through, in, through it all, and in spite of all of God's goodness to them, they turn their back on God again and again and again. And after turning their backs on God for about 400 years... 400 years of God's patience. Finally, God says, forget about it. And he brings judgment upon them. And he destroys their city through the nation of Babylon. And God's people are taken into exile. But while they're in exile, God brings promises to his people again. And he says, my word of judgment will not be the final word over your life. And that is good news. God's word of judgment, his punishment, the calamity that your own stupidity brings in your life is not the last word over your life. There is a better, a stronger word over your life, and that's the word of promise. And that promise comes to Israel again and again and again in exile. And one of those promises says that uh, there'll be about 70 years, and then At the end of 70 years, God will begin to work over his people again. Daniel in exile now is in the year of Darius, and it's about been close to that 70-year period. So he starts pouring over the Bible, and he comes to this promise in Jeremiah. And listen to what this promise says. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you 
and will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. You have been out in exile, but I'm gonna bring you home. And then he says this, one of the most beautiful promises in all of the Bible. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. He says to the nation, he says to you, he says to me, judgment is not the final word over your life. There is coming an end, and after judgment comes to an end, promise, good plans. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you a future and a hope. A future and a hope that is not dependent upon you making all of the right decisions in your life. Thank God, amen. Amen. But a future and a hope that is based upon God's own faithfulness to his promises. And so Daniel says it was after he was pouring over this word, these words of Jeremiah that verse three, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord God and made my confession. So what was it that evoked his confession? It was this word of promise. Listen, listen to me very carefully. The fertile soil in the Christian life that really evokes an ongoing life of repentance and recognition of our own failures and our stupidity is the soil of God's mercy and grace. And why is that? Well, I think you know by your experience, when you are in relationship with a boss or with a spouse or with a parent that holds their judgment over you, and that if you mess up and you get out of line and you take it too far, that will be the end for you and they will write you off altogether. This is not God. You see, what does that produce in someone's life? That kind of judgment that puts in you a fear that I'm gonna be utterly written off and cast away, that kind of fear produces hiding. And listen, when church communities create the kind of culture in them where it is not okay for us to be honest without actually somehow being cast out of the community, not being in on the relationships anymore, we can't be honest about our failures in our marriage or as parents or in any number of places in our life because you are all a mess. I mean, I don't know all of you very well, but I know this, you're a train wreck. Can I get a witness? but we've made a mess of a whole lot of things in our life. And it's only when we recognize that what is stronger than the punishment of God or his verdict on our mistakes as being wrong, what is stronger than all of that, though that is true, is God's word of mercy that creates fertile soil for us to be honest and to come to God again and again and again and to open up our heart and to tell him what is there. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that God is some grandfather in the sky that says, oh, well, we all make our mistakes and don't worry. That's not what we're talking about here. God's mercy is way stronger and more beautiful than all of that. This is not the hope either that simply that that God is not going to discipline us or bring any calamity in our life because of the stupidity that that we have. No, very often you reap what you sow. 
And when you reap what you sow and you suffer discipline, oftentimes it is for your good. And some of you, you could bear, and all of you could probably bear testimony to that. You know, some of the most profound lessons I have learned in my life, it was because God exposed me and he brought me low and he took me through pain. And I am not alone, am I? And so we're not saying that God simply overlooks our foibles and failures, nor are we saying that God doesn't discipline us. What we're saying is that there is something stronger and better and more eternal and solid than even God's discipline in our life, and that's his word of eternal mercy and love over us. And it's in this soil that we are free like Daniel to make our confession. In one of my favorite little sections in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic Life Together, it's one of my favorite books. It sits on my uh, desk in my office. But Bonhoeffer puts it like this. I I love this. Listen to this. He says, it is the grace of God in the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to understand, that confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone. My son, give me thine heart. God has come to you to save the sinner. Be glad. This message is liberation through truth. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and to your brothers and sisters as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. You know, the only way to really approach God is with honesty You know, if you bring your false self, the same self you often bring to church with you, if you bring that before the face of God, God can't do anything with the false self because that's not the real you. The you that God can work with is the real you, the broken you, the sinful you. I was reading this week uh, the story about Carla Faye Tucker. Some of you will remember her. She was uh, convicted of a really brutal murder uh, a couple decades ago, and then she was ultimately put to death uh, on, the, on the electric chair in uh, Texas. She had this terribly difficult life, and uh, she was abused when she was just a very small child, and her mom got her using drugs with her mom when she was 11 years old. And then she goes on, she becomes a prostitute, a drug addict, and then ultimately commits this heinous murder of a couple in their own home. After she gets sentenced to death, she gets converted to Christianity, and her life is radically changed. And it just struck me as I was reading through this, God God can deal with prostitution. God can deal with even murder. God can deal with all kinds of stuff, but what God cannot deal with is a false self, because your false self doesn't give God anything to work with. And so God asks us to come and to dare to be sinners before his face regularly and often, making our confession before him. So number one, confession begins with the promise of God's mercy. That's where Daniel's prayer, his prayer of confession, it begins with the promise made to the prophets, mercy is ahead. But notice secondly, his confession not only begins with the promise of God's mercy, but secondly, his confession reckons 
with the ugly reality of sin. His confession takes stock of exactly what sin is and what it does in our lives. And he speaks this very honestly. Look at what it says in verse four again. He says, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That sounds good, right? But it gets really dark now, watch. But we... We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. We've turned aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your name through the prophets and the, the word that you brought to the kings and the princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but not to us. To us belongs open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who who are near and those who are far away in all of the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery which they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And so the curse and the oath, which was written by the, in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem, as it is written in the law of of Moses. All this calamity has come upon us. And yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity that has been brought upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now our Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is to this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. Now, I went through the trouble of reading that entire section because he went through the trouble of writing the whole thing. (laughs) But I wanted you to hear the taxonomy of sin in this text. It's like he, this text is just replete. He, he can't stop saying enough negative things about what the children of Israel have done. I mean, you hear all the terms. He says, we have uh, done wickedly. We have sinned, done wrong, rebelled, turned aside, not listened. Uh, we have committed treachery. And then after having all of this incredible variety of ways in which he describes the brokenness of of humanity and the brokenness of Israel, he repeats three times, we have sinned, and then we have sinned, and then we have sinned. Now, this is just not the kind of thing that makes sense to modern people in the Western world. I I think to a lot of uh, modern American people, And I count myself in this boat. I like to stay positive, don't you? I mean, let's get away from all this negative self-talk. You know, let's let's be positive and cheery. Let's smile a little bit more. (laughs) 
yet Daniel, in the face of our desire for positive self-talk, goes on this litany of descriptive phrases of all of the ways in which we have done wrong. And I think, again, to modern American people, when we think about sin, we, we, think, we speak of it kind of almost as something that's trite. Uh, if we speak of it at all in the broader culture, it's, it's almost in an ironic sort of way. We talk about how chocolate or red wine is sinfully delicious, and we sort of make light of the whole notion. Now, why do modern American people take it so lightly, but Daniel here takes it with such weight and gravity? And I think it's because he knows the essence of sin. And listen, the essence of sin is relational breakdown through our own rebellious self-assertion. Sin is, is, is relational breakdown through our own rebellious self-assertion. St. Augustine, in his uh, confessions, remembers this incident where uh, some friends of his, and he broke into a pear orchard, and they stole a bunch of pears. And in his confession, he reflects on this, and he says, why did I do it? He said, I don't even like pears, and I wasn't even hungry. And what he points out is what was underneath the surface of all of that was he just wanted to transgress the law that said don't cross over the fence and take the pear. And he's naming this internal impulse that says, no one will tell me how to live my life. Sin is that active inclination. It's that human propensity through our own rebellious self-assertion to screw things up in our life and to break apart our relationships. Sin hates limitations, and it's always breaking those real limitations and wanting to break free from those, the limitations of being in a marriage relationship and parenting relationships and neighboring relationships and say, no, I don't want to have obligations toward neighbor, toward spouse, toward children, toward the world, toward uh, the, 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 the land animals and the sea creatures and the ocean. I just want to do whatever I want in the world, whenever I want, however I want. I want to make my own standard. And this is the essence of sin. It's relational breakdown, relational breakdown first between our relationship with God. You see, you were designed to have a relationship with God. You were made for God. You are a creature, God is creator, and we were intended to enjoy and delight in that, in that relationship by living lives of worship and praise and gratitude and joy and delight in the presence of eternal love. But we didn't want to live within the boundaries of God's rule in our life in Adam and then ultimately in Israel, and we cast off those limitations. We said, no, I will go my own way and do my own thing, and this is the essence of sin. It is rebellious self-assertion that fractures relationships, our relationship with God, but also our relationship with self. And so when he speaks about these terms about transgression, about not listening, these are our relational ideas. He's not just talking about being a little bit, you know, kind of messing up sometimes. He's talking here about turning away 
from God and toward the limitations that God puts in our lives and the limitations that are given to us through the relationships we have with neighbor and creation and spouse and children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the essence of sin. And this is what he names before the face of God. God, I have gone my own way. We have been rebellious. We have not listened. But he also reckons in this prayer of confession, not only with the essence of sin, he also reckons the consequences of sin because he speaks about a calamity and the threefold repetition that we have sinned, we have sinned, we have sinned is matched by a threefold repetition of you have brought calamity and we have come under calamity and we have come under calamity. And what he's pointing out here is he's owning the fact that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. It breaks things apart. It, re- it erodes relationships. You know, and just think for a minute about just one sin. Think about the sin of lying. What happens when you lie? Well, think about all the ways it begins to break things apart. We begin to experience calamity. The more you lie, even if you're not found out, the, the more you lie, the more you erode relationships with people who trust you. The more you lie, the more you live with fear that others are going to find out about the lie and you're going to be exposed. And so you you go deeper and deeper into hiding and you hurt even your own self-identity. And then the more you lie to people, you're treating people as objects, not as subjects. You dehumanize the people around you. And, And studies have shown that the more you lie, the less you trust others. And the more you lie, the more you are taking a shot at the social fabric in which we live, which is built on trust. And so do you see, sin just breaks stuff apart. And God hands us over to the calamitous results of our own behavior. And so Daniel reckons with the ugly reality of sin, what it is, it is relational, breakdown, it is rebellious, self-assertion that ultimately brings fracturing. It breaks apart relationships and it breaks apart the social fabric of our world. And confession means naming the truth before the face of God. And he goes on. Confession not only begins with the promise of God, not only does confession reckon with the ugly reality of sin, but thirdly, confession takes the voice of responsibility. You know, I think for me, the most surprising thing about this prayer of confession is the person who is praying it. You know, you would think that when you read the descriptive phrases, we have rebelled, we have sinned, we have transgressed, we have done treacherously, you, you would think that this is flowing off the lips of, you know, a Carla Faye Tucker, you know, the drug addict, prostitute, murderer, but it's not flowing off the lips of the drug addict, prostitute, murderer. Who is praying these words? It is arguably the most righteous, upright example of a man of God that we have in the Old Testament, You know, um, some people, you know, they read the Bible looking for heroes, and oftentimes when we teach our children, we tell them, you know, be like David, you know, except for all that adultery and murderous stuff. (laughs) You know, be like Abraham, but just don't, you know, uh, sell your wife to, hand your wife over to the king of Egypt or whatever, and uh, constantly doubt God, you know. The, 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 the examples in the Bible are, are just replete with utter failure, but not Daniel. 
I mean, Daniel, we see, Daniel is like the model of a life lived well in the midst of a culture that is completely against the way of, of, of life that we find in God. Daniel is active in, in Babylonian government. He, he's being a blessing to the Babylonian people. He's helping them. And yet all of the while, he has drawn a line in the sand. He will not bow down to their idols. He will not eat their delicacies. He, he will remain true to the God of Israel. This is a man who's always faithful. What is he doing that's confess? Why is he confessing sin? Why is he the person on whose lips we find the most beautiful prayer of confession in the entire Bible. Well, let's just press this a little bit deeper. Daniel, by some degrees, instead of confessing, he could have been complaining because it was, it was his parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-great-grandparents and great-great-great-great-great-grandparents and great-great-great-great-great-grandparents and all of the generations before. It was all of their stupidity and all of their sin that landed Daniel in Babylon. He is suffering the consequences of the failures of his previous parents and grandparents. And yet, in spite of his own righteousness, in spite of the fact that he could be complaining. He could be bitter. He's naming sin. How can that be? And I think the simple answer is, is that Daniel here is taking the voice of responsibility. Several years ago, I remember talking with a friend of mine who was a pastor, and he had had this kind of negative experience in his church, and it had kind of left him bitter. And he said, the turn happened. He had kind of like gone, he got on the bitter train. Anybody here ever get on the bitter train? Anybody here on the bitter train right now? Just lift your hands. We'll pray for you. Um, yes. All right. Thank you. In the back, I see you. We will pray for you, brother. Yes. Um, but he said the turn happened when he was in therapy. And his therapist said, I, I keep listening to you narrate your story. And he says, you're narrating your story in the voice of the victim. He says, let's try to re-narrate your story with you taking the voice of responsibility. Now, he wasn't discounting the voice of the victim. Daniel actually doesn't discount the voice of the victim. Daniel, in our earlier chapters, you remember, entire chapter seven was all about how the children of Israel had been victimized by the beasts, these inhumane pagan governments that were abusing them. And it names the abuse and it names the victim reality. But not here. Here we're invited to take a different voice, not the voice of the victim, but the voice of responsibility, where we take ownership for the fact that, listen, it wasn't your mother She's not, she's not responsible. It wasn't your daddy issues that are responsible for everything you have done wrong in life. It's not my brother. It's not my sister. It's not my neighbor standing in the need of prayer. It is me. It is me. It is me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And this is Daniel. He takes ownership. He keeps saying, we have sinned. We, we, we. He is entering into solidarity with his broken parents and grandparents and even pagan Babylon. He's saying, God, we are all a mess. And listen, if Daniel, the righteous one, is a mess, then we are all a mess and in trouble. There was a great story. The London Times, just after World War II, invited people to respond to an essay asking the question, what's wrong with the world? 
and they received a bunch of different entries, and the one that they wound up printing was one simple phrase from G.K. Chesterton. And he said, dear sirs, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. It's not my brother, it's not my sister, it's me. It's me standing in the need of prayer. You know, you love to blame shift, and so do I. I love to scapegoat, I like to find other people. I love to narrate the story so that I come out as the victim, even if I was responsible, you know what I'm saying? We should have offer classes on this. <laughs> What's even better is when you tell, when you narrate the story, and it's not even that you were the victim, you were the hero. I like to tell those stories. <laughs> but here Daniel recounts the story of his own culpability. He owns sin. You know, here's the reality. The cold, dark reality is that we are all in the same boat. And the reason why we are self-righteous critics and judges is because somehow we think we're in a different category of humanity than other people. And we divide the world up all the time into the goodies and the baddies. And I remember, you know, just after 9-11, you know, uh, I, I remember some of the rhetoric was, was coming out from, from our own nation, was talking about, you know, picturing us as the good people against kind of the evil regimes out there. Of course, this was the rhetoric of the Reagan administration, you know, the evil empire. But listen, good and e- the line of good and evil does not run across the globe. The line of good and evil runs down the heart of us all. I had this fascinating conversation with a, a, a friend or a new friend in this community who I met last night uh, who was an MP at Guantanamo Bay. And he's told me that, um, he said it's fascinating, he said he, uh, in, the, in the course of that experience, he wound up getting to know a little bit because he was giving oversight to some of the bodyguards for Osama bin, bin Laden. And he, he knew their rap sheet. He knew that these were very, very terrible, terrible people. But he said they just seemed like regular human beings to him. They just seemed like somebody else on the street he might talk to. And it's because the bodyguards of Osama bin Laden are not a unique category of humanity. They are us all under the right circumstances and in the right conditions. Do you know what you're capable of? Do I know what I'm capable of? You know, it's, it, it's interesting, you know, back at, at the turn of the 20th century, you know, as progress, modernity began to grow and education and all of that, you know, the, 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 the thought was that, look, if we just get people more educated and more technologically advanced, you know, this is the rise of, of I- empires in the 20th century, you know, uh, England and uh, France, and, you know, we got we to gotta get all those uncivilized people educated, and we got to get them technologicalized. You can write that down, Hugh, and uh, put that in your lexicon. Yes, thank you. Um, and then, in the middle of the 20th century, the most educated and technologically advanced society in the world to date rounded up six million Jews and put them in a gas chamber. These are not a rare, odd, unique 
wicked type of humanity, this is us all under the right conditions. We are all in need of the mercy and grace of God. And this is what leads Daniel into this regular practice of confession. Yes, he had been upheld by God to be the most righteous man we know of in the Bible. But even this man recognized that he's in solidarity with all of humanity. His fathers in Israel went the way of their father, Adam, and they got cast out from the garden and brought under the calamitous judgment of God. And Daniel shares their condition. So we see, number one, that confession begins with the promise of God. Secondly, confession reckons with the ugly reality of sin. Thirdly, confession takes the voice of responsibility. But fourthly and finally, what I want you to see is that Daniel's confession and that our confession ultimately is met and overmatched by the enigmatic promise of God. Now, you'll notice that I said that confession both, it began with the promise of God, and now I'm saying that it ends with the promise of God. Because in this text, we begin with the promise about 70 years, and the end, we have a promise about 70 weeks, and both are the same promise. They're both a promise about what God will do to ultimately end the judgment and end the sin and end the brokenness of humanity and break into the world and ultimately bring his life-saving healing rule to bear on all creation, to bring his mercy, his eternal mercy that is stronger than all of our brokenness and sin to come and to bear and to speak over our own lives. And just look at what it says. This is, um, I'm just going to read this text because he went through the trouble of writing it, so we're going to go through the trouble of reading it. So Daniel, he confesses his sin, and wrapped up in this confession is he starts to pray and plead for the mercy of God. God, in spite of our own stupidity, act and do me good. Look at what he says. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all the nations. Now, therefore, our God, listen to the prayer of your servants and his plea for mercy for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open up your eyes and see the desolations that the holy city called by your name. For we do not present our pleas to you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And the church said, amen. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for your own sake, oh, Lord, my God, because of your city and your people who are called by your name. He says, God, you see the mess we're in. God, come and act. How long, oh, Lord, will we continue on in our suffering the consequences of our own stupidity? God, come and act. In verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice, and he made me understand, speaking with me, saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. I love that. Before he even got into the good stuff with the confession. 
before the, the meat of the confession even came in, while the prodigal was still just kind of meandering home, rehearsing the speech he was going to tell his father, there the father met him with all of his mercy and love. While you, when you just began to make your prayer, he said, the man Gabriel, who I have seen in the vision, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made, it, made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Here's the answer to his prayer. Almost everyone says who studies this, this is the most enigmatic, difficult passage in the entire book of Daniel. Some even say this is one of the most difficult passages in the entire panoply of scripture. And this is the answer to Daniel's confession of sin. Verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to the sin probably the sin that led them into exile will finally be brought to an end. And to atone for iniquity, all of their sins will be cleansed and washed away and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a priest, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moats but in a troubled time, that all makes sense to everyone, right? And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. Interesting. The anointed one shall be cut off. What on earth? The coming anointed, the Messiah is going to be cut off? Killed? How is this good news? And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Another destruction of the temple? Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half a week. He shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the end is dec the decreed wind is poured out on the desolate. Amen, right? Like what? On I don't have time to go into all this, but I will say this. This enigmatic, strange promise of God that Israel's exile and all of the sin that brought her into exile and humanity's long exile and all of the sin and brokenness that brought us into our long night of exile in a world of war and brokenness and homicides and all manner of evil and wickedness, this long night of exile will ultimately come to an end through the anointed one who will bring in everlasting righteousness and ultimately be cut off for the sins of his people. Ultimately, it would not be Daniel and humanity that would fall under the axe, that would suffer the ultimate calamity for all of our rebellion against the God who made us. Ultimately, all of that would be borne by the anointed one, even by Jesus 
our great Emmanuel who has come into this world to put an end to our sin, to break open the floodgates of God's mercy, and to ultimately bring in an eternal reign of righteousness in all of creation. And that is very, very good news. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now with honest recognition of our own need before your face. God, I bring to you, especially this morning, my friends in this room who might find themselves struggling with their own guilt and shame and past failures and the way they've kind of screwed things up in their own life. I pray, O oh God, that you would remind them afresh of your great mercy. I pray, O oh God, that you would open up our lips, that we would be people who are quick to speak our own brokenness before you, who are honest. And I pray, O oh God, that you would form and shape us into a community of truth speaking about ourselves and a community of mercy, where though we are honest about sin and all of its consequences, we know that that which is stronger and more powerful than any of our sin is your own great mercy and love. God, pour out your mercy afresh on us this morning and open our lips and our hearts so that we might receive it. Amen.